Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. We find ourselves in John's account of the Passion story tonight. The scene takes place six days before the Passover. Jesus had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead, and as a result, many believed in him. But some of, some of the Jews were wanting to cause trouble. So they went and told the Pharisees and the chief priests about the miracle, trying to stir up trouble. The Jewish leaders were fearful that Jesus' growing popularity and his influence would cause instability in their community and provoke some intervention from the Romans and bring about a loss of political status for the Jews. In short, they rejected the kingdom of heaven because it threatened their worldly peace. What to do? Well, they met in council, they considered their options, And they decided to preserve the nation and the status quo, they would kill Jesus. This was the official conciliar decision expressed by Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus would die for the nation. Now, in some ways, this might even sound a little noble. They were only looking out for the nation after all. Israel trying to protect what God had established. They just had a bad idea about how to go about it. Nothing more than poor judgment. In fact, I was flipping through channels a couple days ago, or maybe it was yesterday, and this time of of year there's a lot of shows about, you know, (coughs) this week and Easter on, on TV, and there was, I happened to click on, and there was a story about this very thing and about Caiaphas. And the narrator on the show actually said this, actually suggested that, you know, really, the proper way to look at this was Caiaphas was really doing a noble thing. He was just a little confused. It was just poor judgment. He was looking out for the nation. (laughs) Now, we know that's absurd. These weren't just well-meaning folk who got a little mixed up and accidentally killed the Son of God. It was misguided but from a good motive, some people say. Well, Jesus clears that up. He says, quite frankly, their deeds were evil, and he calls them children of Satan. (laughs) This is so often, though, how we treat sin, even our own sin. We're afraid to face it, its reality. We're afraid to really admit its absolute darkness. But if we trust in God, if we believe in his love for us, if we believe in his power to deliver us, in his commitment to deliver us and to bring us to a good end, then we would not shrink back. We would not be afraid to face our sin in its ugliness. We would face it and we would deal with it because we would not be afraid knowing that God shall indeed deliver us from it. At any rate, from that day on, John tells us that they plotted to kill Jesus. They were meeting behind closed doors. They were whispering in the marketplace. They were passing secret messages around in the crowd. They were stirring up the people, trying to turn the crowds on him. 
They had even, we read, put a bounty out on Jesus. They were very hard at work doing God's business to save the nation. They would murder this bastard child who was stirring up all this trouble and putting their Jewish nation in jeopardy. That's what was happening. Jesus was aware of all of this, of course, and he would decide when and how he would be taken by them. They, inspired by the devil, were really just pawns in God's plan. It was all a part of an elaborate scheme for the devil to take the bait which would lead to his own destruction. It's now six days before Passover and Jesus is hiding in the wilderness with his disciples. There's a lot of activity going on in Jerusalem preparing for the feast. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus was very much on the crowd's mind. Even in the midst of all this hustle and bustle, the chatter among the crowd was all about this Jesus. It was public knowledge that the Jewish leaders had put out a bounty on his head and that were plotting to kill him. John says the crowd stood around the temple talking amongst themselves and wondering if Jesus would even come to the feast because of the danger. Will he show himself? They wondered. Again, the chief priests had sent word out among the crowd that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were supposed to immediately report it so that he could be seized. The time comes now for Jesus to re-enter the public scene. And so he and the disciples come down from the wilderness into Bethany to visit his good friends, Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And they have supper together. Martha served the dinner, and Lazarus sat at table with Jesus. As a side note about Martha, in this scene, it's contrasted, her attitude is contrasted towards Jesus from the last scene where she reproached him about her dead brother. Her earlier arrogance has now been transformed by the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection. Now she quietly, gracefully serves. It is in Martha's nature to serve. She has a gift of service. Before, though, she was anxious, distracted in her serving, but now she serves graciously, humbly, quietly. Her serving itself has been transformed by her brother's resurrection. Her serving is a prayerful service, a holy service. The scene moves to her sister Mary, who John tells us takes a pound of costly spikenard and she anoints Jesus' feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. And he says the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. There's nothing really unusual about anointing someone with perfumed oil in their day for some special festive occasion. But it was absolutely unheard of to pour an entire year's wages worth of costly oil on someone's feet. Mary demonstrates an extravagance of shameless love for her Savior. She is extravagant in her humility by anointing his feet. It would have been perfectly proper to anoint his head, but she stoops as low as it is possible to express the depth of her humility 
and her love before him. In fact, she, she, this woman, prefigures Jesus' act of humility when he would shortly wash the disciples' feet, the task of a lowliest slave. Then the disciples would wash one another's feet in obedience to Christ in their life because Jesus had washed theirs. But here is Mary, without the example of the Lord. It is she who sets the example and first washes his feet. She is extravagant in her love by the cost of her sacrifice. The cost of her sacrifice has no real utilitarian value. It's no practical purpose. Just like the sacrifice of worship is poured out, just like the Jews poured out the blood of the grape upon the altar, her sacrifice of worship is like that burnt offering, a sweet-smelling smoke to God, a libation that is poured out and then gone, a burnt sacrifice that goes up in smoke and is gone. There's nothing left. As far as the unbeliever is concerned, there's nothing to show for it. What is its purpose? What did it produce? What a waste. Well, the devil Judas calls this a waste. And the Savior rebuked him. We, on the other hand, who are in love with God and understand such things, call it sweet communion, adoration, and love. She's shameless, too, when she wipes his feet with her hair. This would have been completely unacceptable for a woman to loose her hair in public, but she did not pause even for a moment to calculate public opinion. She was caught up in her love for Christ. She expressed it without a hint of self-consciousness. She was not absorbed with herself. We likewise need to get out of our own heads in order to truly love God in this way. We're so wrapped up in our own insecurities and our judgments of others. The beautiful abundance of Mary's affection for Christ and the spiritual insight that accompanies her actions is highlighted by John's remark that the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Not only the house is filled, but the entire world has been filled with the beauty and the fragrance of her act of sacrifice and love. Jesus said as much when he said that she would be remembered through all the ages for what she had done. Our house today is filled with fragrance. It is the fragrance of Mary's act which we remember on this night. Well, there is a contrast of light and darkness in the room at this supper because Judas speaks up. Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor, he says. John tells us plainly that Judas said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was the treasurer of Jesus' little band and was accustomed to stealing from the money box. He was a thief. There's a lot of speculation about Judas' motivation for betraying Jesus, and a lot of modern psychology tries to get into Judas's head, figure him out, with the intent, like with Caiaphas, 
Like I said, we never like to call sin, sin. We're always trying to skirt it and cover it up. The intent is to make Judas into the victim half the time. Poor Judas. But the scriptures and the fathers tell us quite plainly what motivated Judas and opened his heart to the devil. Judas agreed with the Jews to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's what we know. Judas was a thief. He regularly pinched from the money box to line his own pockets. He flat out asks the Jews what they will give him to betray Jesus. And for what other reasons he did it, we know this. He did it for the money. He's a thief. He's greedy. St. Paul tells us the love of money is the root of all evil. Judas and his avarice become an occasion for Satan to take him over and to use him as the betrayer. Maybe the reason we need to come up with other more interesting motivations is because we are unwilling to admit how sinister avarice actually is. Well, Jesus shuts Judas down. Let her alone, he says. Jesus is not going to let this devil cause Mary, beloved Mary, sweet Loving, godly, virtuous, holy Mary, cause her any problems. Then Jesus reveals the greater significance of her actions. She has kept this for the day of my burial. This day of Jesus' presence at table with Lazarus is the preparation for his burial. Mary is the first one to recognize the significance of Jesus' death. And we are to see in her insightful and prophetic act the symbolic embalming of his body for burial as though he were already dead. In the Mass, we refer to the bread and wine, the gifts, as before they are consecrated, as spotless and holy, as sacrifices, We call them this before they become the body and blood of Christ because we are in the Spirit. We are transcending time in this moment and we are anticipating the eschatological reality that is present in these gifts, what they will shortly become a few prayers hence. Similarly, Mary embalms the body of Jesus with her extravagant, shameless humility and love, pointing to his ultimate sacrifice of his ultimate gift of himself for the life of us all. It is his gift that inspires her to offer herself to the Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.